one of the reasons I had such a hard time finding information was because dance in general, and especially folk dances, were not considered worthy of having a place in an educational institution because the dances of the common people were common. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Baladins Live podcast. I'm your host, Jana Komarnitska, and I'm thrilled to share a new portion of dance inspiration with you. If you are a new listener, welcome to the show. Don't forget to subscribe and receive automatic updates about our new episodes. And if you are our regular listener, welcome back. Please leave your reviews on whichever app you're listening. They really help me promote the show and spread awareness about Baladins art form. Plus, I really like like hearing back from you. On this note, let's get to our today's episode. Have you ever considered adding a fitness element to your belly dance classes? That's one of the typical reasons why students come to a dance class at first place, to improve their physicality. Imagine how much your teaching business can benefit if you know how to combine these two elements together, dance and fitness and how to emphasize it in your marketing strategy. And that's exactly what Orit teaches at her Sharky the Belly Dance Workout Instructors Academy. You live with razor-sharp teaching skills and best practices for your teaching business project. The next Sharky Instructor Academy starts on April 3rd, so apply ASAP to secure your spot. More info at sharky.com teach. S-H-A-R-Q-U-I dot com slash teach. Sharky dot com slash teach. Direct link in the show notes. Get ready for a very special treat that we have for you today. Because on our today's show, we have amazing Morocco, also known as Aunt Rocky. She is a member of the Congress on Research in Dance, the Society of Dance History Scholars, the International Council on Dance by UNESCO, and the International Council on Health, Physical Education, Sport, and Dance by UNESCO. Morocco was awarded two grants by the State Council on the Arts for her choreographies in 1972 and 1981, three New York City Department of Cultural Affairs Community Service grants, three summer program grants, a material for the arts grant and an arts exposure grant. And this is just a very small part of all her awards, all her achievements, all grants and all acknowledgement that she received throughout her career starting from 1960. Since 1964, Morocco has written for several publications in her field and been reprinted in dance, medical and feminist publications internationally. A true pioneer in her field, she taught a three-credit course in Middle Eastern dance and culture at the State University of New York in mid-70s. In our today's conversation, we had a very fun dive into different stories that Morocco had throughout her dance career. Starting from the very beginning, how she got involved in ballet dance completely by accident, coming to an audition, not even knowing that it was a ballet dance show audition. We also discussed the story of her stage name and where it came from. And, of course, 
of course, dived a little bit in her actual research work. I was very curious to ask her opinion on how old she thinks belly dance is, how ancient this art form is, but also we discussed a lot of other topics and more uh, concepts around research itself, like actually approaching research deeper and never stopping doing the research work and even reviewing and revisiting potential mistakes in your previous research works and how important it is and also the fact that she was at some point teaching at university which is not that typical or that common to see all around the world so that's what we have for today i was very happy that we did manage to do this interview i'm very grateful to morocco that she agreed to participate to take time to share her dance experience and dance knowledge with us I'm pretty sure you will enjoy this interview too, so don't forget afterwards to screenshot it, share with friends. This kind of conversations and this kind of people need to be known by as many participants of dance community as possible because those are the people that shifted and did a lot for the development of our dance form and really contributed not only to popularizing it but also to deepening the knowledge and understanding of what exactly we all are doing and what exactly we are all enjoying by dancing to these beautiful tunes because this is not just movement it's a part of the culture so on this note i hope you enjoy the interview and see you soon this episode was brought to you by the yana dance club a meeting place for committed dance enthusiasts of all levels most of our members shared that the club helped them to improve consistency in their training meet new dance friends and discover various topics through hundreds of different tutorials this is definitely a belly dance training that becomes a lifestyle learn more at yanadanceclub.com link in the show notes or simply visit yanadanceclub.com and try for seven days for free hello dear morocco hello dear and rocky so happy to have you on the podcast thank you so much for agreeing to do this project and to join and share your time with us today talking about your dance experience your dance journey really really happy to welcome you here thank you you during your dance career and still like uh, till now you have received so many different awards you did so many different projects so many different achievements that um i was a little bit even lost like okay what exactly should i ask <laughs> about your journey but i would love to start from the very beginning i know you probably have been asked many many times but i would be very grateful if you share with us the very beginning because i know you had a very curious story how you got involved in Middle Eastern uh, dance and dance performances specifically seen very accidentally and it was a very interesting story and even your stage name or your dance name known Morocco it was because of one of your first gigs so can you share please uh, this story just like as an opening to our today's conversation because I think it's very awesome <laughs> it is actually interesting it keeps surprising me every time I tell it it's like but things like this don't happen in real life yes they do Real life happens while you're busy making other plans. 
<clears throat> I was a concert flamenco dancer, and I had one of my first big jobs with the Ballet Espanol Jimenez Vargas. And in that day and age, they could get away with not paying the dancers or the actors or the singers in a production for rehearsal. That was before the unions really got going. And so I wasn't getting paid anything. I was getting skinny because I didn't have money to eat. And the place where we rehearsed was managed by a Greek Orthodox priest for the Spiro Alvinaitis. And we were friends because he needed, he needed somebody to type some papers for him. And I was there a lot and I knew how to type and I liked him. He was a nice guy, he had a really nice son. And he actually would hire me occasionally to babysit his son. So they didn't leave him alone in the studio. He was good to have a woman with him so that he was well taken care of. And he said to me, look, you're getting too skinny. You die of hunger. Your father's going to come and find me and kill me. I should put it in here. My father was a cop. Uh, he was he was a policeman and then a corrections officer. He was in law enforcement his whole life. And <laughs> I'm his daughter. Um, and that's kind of funny, too. But he said, um, we can't have you starving to death. A friend of mine is opening a restaurant nightclub and they need dancers and singers and musicians. I've heard you sing. I'm sending you as a dancer. He said, I'll, I'll give you the address. You go, you see her, you audition. If she likes you, she'll hire you. You'll be able to make enough money to have something to eat. And I won't watch you get skinnier and skinnier. And I said, okay, all right. I can take my guitarist, right? Because I don't know if the guitarist can play for, for, for dancers or not. Because in flamenco, the technique for playing for dancers is very different than the technique from, for playing with singers. The dancers, it's rhythm and they indicate the rhythm changes. For singers, it's the key where you put the capo on the frets of the guitar and how you can raise or lower it to, because the key would be more important for a singer than a dancer. And so I go with my guitarist, who was Sabikas's brother. At that point, the most respected and famous uh, flamenco guitarist was Sabikas. And his brother, Diego Castellón, was one of the guitarists for the Ballet Espanol and for the events that endured Val Flamenco in New York City. And he would play for me when I had club dates. And I needed, and I could get a big, a lot musician with me. So I go to the this address I was given on 8th Avenue and 29th Street in Manhattan. And I go, I come to the door and the woman comes up to me and says, and who are you and what can I do for you? And I said, well, I'm a dancer and I was told you needed dancers and I'm here to audition. He says, oh, you're a dancer and you're here to audition. Okay. Why don't you go put on your costume and we'll see what you can do. So I went downstairs and I, the dressing room was downstairs and I put on uh, my dress that they call the bata, they call that, which is something you kick a tail around. And uh, I come upstairs. It's one of the most difficult things to operate and dance in at the same time. Because you have to be dancing, you have to be smooth, you have to be everything you would be in a regular costume. But with a bata, you also have a tail that's about three feet longer than your dress out behind you and you kick it around while you're moving around and hope you get out in one piece. So I go and I change, I come upstairs and she says, what's this? And I said, it's the bata de cola. 
okay. Um, and I'm thinking, well, this is a restaurant. I can see the tables and there's a flat dance floor, but there's no stage. It's just a wooden 12 by 12 in the floor. And it hit me that if they had people dining here, they're not going to want to have dust kicked in their face by the flamenco dancer. So I said, oh, I got the short dress with the polka dots and the ruffles. And I have uh, the writing habit that's very dramatic and it also takes up less space. She looks at me and says, honey, we don't want flamenco dancer. We want ballet dancer. And I said, I don't do ballet per se, but I do do Spanish Escuela Bolera. And let's hear if her accent's affecting how you understand each other or don't. And some of the other people waiting to audition started laughing because that was pretty hysterical. And if I wasn't the one in the center and being the catbird, I would be thinking it was really funny and be laughing myself. But I said, well, this is all I brought with me, uh, except for the writing so I could change into that. Because we don't want Spanish dancer. I said, I just told you I don't do bad. I don't do flamenco. I don't do ballet. I do Spanish ballet, which is like Western ballet, but it's got different arms and posture and those wonderful little differences like that. And he said, one of the other women who was waiting to audition was laughing so hard. The tears were running down her face. And she said, you're going to have to stuff it with something, but I will lend you my costume. I got to see what you can do. So she lends me her costume. And I had my uh, two pairs of winter socks because it had snowed. And I have two pairs of winter socks in the bra. And there's still a credibility gap. So I put in a couple of rolls of toilet paper and tied a scarf around myself so that it held it in place. And I come upstairs and they put on, uh, they ask Diego to play something. And he plays something. And it was Sambra Mora, which is the Morbid Sambra, one of his things that they either like to forget or pretend that it's originally Spanish when Sambra Mora means a Moorish good time or a Moorish party or an evening party in the 10% up to 5 to 10% of Spanish came from Arabic, from Andalusia and all those wonderful little things. Well, all these things notwithstanding, there I am, there's Diego, he's playing this very minor key, beautiful, sensual melody, and I could dance to that because that was Sabra Mora. And the woman says, you are a dancer. You're a good dancer, but you're not Spanish dancer. This is close. We give you a job for two weeks. You look, you learn, you can stay. You don't look and learn. Thank you very much. Goodbye. And that was how I got my first job. I was supposed to come in that night, but I didn't have a costume. And there was no way on the green earth that they could have gotten a costume together in the amount of time we had. So she said, you sit here, you watch, and then you start tomorrow. and We'll get you a costume tomorrow during the day. But you have to give it back or pay for it. And actually, I liked what I saw when I was up there the next night watching the dancing. I just had never really seen it before. I'd seen a lot of flamenco, so you see a lot of Moorish influence. But it... It was whole families that came in from 
the grandfather, and a couple of times it was a great-grandfather or a great-grandmother, down to the little baby. And sometimes they had the baby in a basket. And they'd either have the baby in the basket on top of the table or they'd put it for the big family tables. They'd put the basket under the table, which led to some really interesting situations when somebody forgot who was supposed to take the basket home. <laughs> it was a million laughs. It was. And for a name, we said, you need a name. This is before I was supposed to go on. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm scared stiff. But in flamenco, you're supposed to be able to improvise because a lot of the performing, especially the traditional performing for parties and festivals, is improvised. You don't know who's going to show up or what they're going to play, and you're supposed to be able to clap to it, to dance to it, to sing to it if necessary, and hope they don't throw any kind of rotten eggs. And so you had from the children up to the adults, and they were dancing with each other and with their friends, sometimes by themselves, which I had never seen in any kind of American club or situation. It was a whole different era. And it was fascinating. I really liked it. Um, the woman said to me, you need a name. I said, I have a name, Carolina Vargas. It's actually Carolina Vargas de Nico, but Carolina Vargas, most Americans could pronounce. So she said, no, you need, you need a Middle Eastern name. I said, why? That's how much I didn't know. This is Middle Eastern dance. This is Oriental dance, ballet dance. I keep telling you I don't do ballet, not ballet, belly dance. I said, oh, it's not the name, but the Americans only know that one. Said, oh, that's interesting. So who are we going to call me? Well, I have a friend. She looks a lot like you. She's a really big star in Boston. And she got married and she's going to stop dancing. I asked her if I could give her name to somebody, if I found a new dancer that I like, if I could give him her name. And she said, yes, her name was Morocco. Mm -hmm. She was actually Algerian. And the man she married was Lebanese or Syrian. And they lived in the Boston area. And so she named me Morocco. And Rocky, that Rocky, she just stopped dancing for a while. And then she went back to it. But by that time, I had become famous as Morocco. And it was kind of funny, but sad because I, I felt really guilty about it. But then she came to see me dance and said, I think she found the right person. You're as crazy as I am. And she was very, very sweet. She died a little over a year ago. And her obituary was in some publications that people who know me saw. So I'm getting all these calls asking me if I was dead. And I said, yeah, you expect me to answer that? And there were no classes. There was no such thing as a, as a class in Oriental dance or Middle Eastern dance. That didn't exist. A lot of things didn't exist in 1960, like computers, you know, CDs, iPods, all these wonderful things that helped in communication and miscommunication. But that's exactly how it started. And it's, I went with the flamenco company for the job we were supposed to do at the Colonial Theater in Boston. And when I came back, I realized that I enjoyed watching the people dancing in this restaurant. And 
trying to do it myself than I did with flamenco. And I loved flamenco. And it was almost like I was given a taste and then I finally saw what I was getting into. And I liked it. And when I went to tell, ask the woman, her name was Mary Antha Stevens, and she was half Greek and half Lebanese, um, a wonderful woman. And she comes up to me and says, you know, you turn out to be a good dancer. I like your attitude. You got a lot to learn, but I like your attitude. But better, better, this the audience likes your attitude. My people like you. You, you. you look crazy. You look like you're having fun. You look like you want them to have fun. That's what it's about. If you want the job, you have it. I wanted the job. And here I am. Yeah. And if somebody had told me this was going to happen, I would have said, what are you smoking? I don't want it. It's too strong for me. What do you think back then captured your attention and your heart? Uh, because you started ballet dance from practical point of view. You needed a job. <laughs> and you got yes. a job that happened to be ballet dance. But then it got to the point that you uh, kind of put aside flamenco paths that you were really into and you fully dedicated or really focused on uh, Middle Eastern dancer and ballet dance yes. career. So what yes. do you think, uh, looking back at those years, what caught your heart so you decided to, to choose that path as your main path? The exclamation point at the end of the sentence was watching the real people do the real dancing <clears throat> and they were doing it for fun and for love and for having a line and circle dances and different groups mixing together and having a grand old time. When I told my flamenco friends where I was working and what I was doing, they thought it was a terrible disgrace. I shouldn't ever tell anybody I worked in a place like that. And I should not say that I did. And I should, maybe I should just stick to flamenco or go take up tap dancing. And they were really nasty about it. And I couldn't understand it because I'm watching these people having a grand old time with stuff that I wouldn't be embarrassed to take my granny to see. And I couldn't understand why they were so paranoid and upset and uh, horrified by it. When the, then I found out that they knew it as belly dance because that is not the real name of the dance. And I didn't know that because there was no literature at the time. Uh, but I was in with the real people watching them do the real things. And I was very, very lucky in that In New York at the time, there were what we had the cabaret laws, where if you were female and you worked in any establishment that had a liquor license and sold alcohol, unless you were a bartender, a cigarette girl, a coat check girl, or something to do with the everyday operation of the restaurant or the nightclub, you could not sit at a table with people that were not you know, with you in the audience, or they would lose, they could lose their liquor license. And this was a whole long story about what happened and how that happened, because there were many clubs in the 50s where they had good jazz music and they had bad girls. Um, and they, girls, the women were hired to drink with the customers and to go with them. And so this was the reputation that 
the authorities in New York wanted to overcome. And they passed all these laws that took many years. And a lawsuit involving Frank Sinatra and Jilly, um, all the family um, places that hired to get it returned over, they had to, they had to take it all the way to. I think they took it all the way to the state supreme court, but that was years later. And I was there were a lot of places I found out when I started dancing around in other places that would not hire an Oriental dancer or Middle Eastern dancer because of the misnomer and because of the people who catered to that misnomer. There were people who thought that that was what was supposed to be done and that was what they did. But in the ethnic clubs that I worked in, you almost never saw that. That wasn't what they were doing. And the at that point, there was a substantial um, immigration from the Levant. And these were mostly people who were looking to improve themselves financially. Uh, that they came and they wanted to hear their music and do their dances. What they did at their family parties and their weddings and their birthday parties and their holidays. And these were family dances. And that was what I was seeing. Mm -hmm. The American clubs were sometimes hiring people that I wouldn't want to go see because I found it boring. Uh, although when it was well done, it could be really interesting, but it wasn't Oriental dance. And what happened there was the dressing room in that particular restaurant, it was called the Arabian Nights, was downstairs. And the tables where the, where the patrons were were upstairs. And if I went to go to change into my costume, the dressing room was the uh, a small room at the back of the ladies' room where I you would dress and then go upstairs, do your show, come down, get back into... Uh, Saturday night, go to the prom dress and sit on the stage with the musicians and the singers because you weren't supposed to mix with the customers. So we were protected because the customers couldn't bother us either. Mm -hmm. You know, well, certainly not inside the restaurant. So in a way, my father would have been okay with my being a dancer in a club like that, but he didn't know what I was doing either. And he had a whole herd of cows. And what happened there was when I was getting ready or when I was getting back into my regular, my Saturday night, go to the prom clothes to go upstairs and sit on the stage and play the drum or my finger cymbals. Um, I could talk to the women that were in the ladies room. And if I saw a woman do a, a movement that I would like to know how to do it or what I could do or what it was about, if I had some questions, I would ask them in the ladies room. And they thought that it was the cutest thing that I was trying to learn stuff that they had learned just by growing up with it. So a couple of them invited me home to come home with if to their family home and they would show me what they did. And that was how I learned. There were two people in particular who I hung out with a lot and I could get good answers from them, but their knowledge was limited. And I was trying to find more information and I couldn't find anything. I mean, there there were no computers. If you wanted to know if the library had a certain book, 
you'd go there and have the librarians search the book stacks for the little cards. And they had these little cards with the name and the author. And it was uh, under a, a, a uh, they call it the Dewey Decimal System. Different subjects were given different numbers. And you would know basically what the main subject of a book was by the number it had. And then there's other numbers and I'm looking for stuff on the dancing I was seeing, and there was nothing. Mm. There were maybe Arabian Nights tales and some fantasy stuff and some nightmare stuff, but it wasn't what I would call learning the history of the dance. And I would ask a lot of these people, mainly women and mainly in the ladies' room, and when I went with them to their homes during the day, and we would be in the kitchen making bakala and other pastries and I'm not a cook. I'm not a kitchen person. <laughs> they were very kind. They let me chop the nuts. I was the walnut chopper. You couldn't really screw up a walnut that badly. And they would tell me what they knew, but they didn't. And we never asked. We just do it. It's what we do. Nobody tells us. We know how to do it. Because we see it from when we're first walking and they put the kids up, they'd stand the little kids up on the tables and say, dance. What do I do? Dance. Mm -hmm. do, do what mommy did. Do what grandma did. Mm -hmm. Do what your uncle did. What? I'm really curious to know also, what brought you specifically on the research path because uh, we start talking about information and you shared how difficult it was to find information at that time but you also went more into like performance career and many dancers when they start performing and that's what they want to do they focus on performance so they do research things but it's more like how to enhance their performance in your case you contributed so much during your career to the research of dance in general not only like you know researching some things on uh, i don't know costume or movement to enhance your performance career let's say but you really took seriously you did so many documentary projects uh, contributing like so many of your research is literally represented in the museums in their libraries in their archives like so much what did you put on a path of that goal of really that. researching and documenting dance? Because it's different than performing or trying to get as a better performer of a dance. True. And it actually, it was because I wanted to know and nobody could tell me. And a lot of what I read I knew wasn't true because it was too much of a, of a really ranchola sexist fantasy. Uh, but I wanted to know, and I couldn't find any, so I had to keep looking. I get obsessed. Um, if there's something I want to know and I can't find it or somebody knows it and they won't tell me, I'll find a way to find out. I wanted to know. I wanted to know if what I was seeing was what the dance really was or if they had cleaned it up or if there were different versions of it and some are cleaner and others, others aren't. And what is clean or dirty varies from culture to culture, era to era. For instance, the immigration now is mainly uh, religious and fundamentalist, and the majority of the Middle Easterners that were in America then were a lot more uh, proud of their dancing and their arts uh, at home. They're, they're, now, they didn't consider it an art, they just considered it family time. 
and having a good time. And that was one of the reasons why, because they liked it so much. I couldn't understand why there was such a dichotomy in how they look at their own dance and how other people look at their dance. And uh, there was also in the course of trying to find some things out, people tell you stories and they may think that that's the story or they may just be coming up with an answer because they didn't want you to think that they didn't know. And I was told a couple of things that I've only found out recently were false and it wasn't done deliberately. It was done because the people who were telling me didn't know anything better. For instance, mm. most of my dance career, I thought that <clears throat> the street in Cairo exhibit at the Chicago World's Fair in 1894, it was the 1893 World's Fair, but it didn't open until 1894. They were a little late. Um, there was a man who was working there named Saul Bloom, and he had uh, an exhibit that he brought from France that were Algerian, it was the Algerian theater. But the Egyptian street in Cairo was not from him, it was from George Pengelo. And I didn't know that until a wonderful Hungarian man named Istvan Armos wrote to me and told me that it was not Saul Bloom. Mm -hmm. And I had been laboring under that delusion and said that Saul Bloom did have an exhibit at the World's Fair and he was also working there in other capacities, or so I'm told. I don't know how much of it is true or not because a lot of it was from his autobiography and I didn't, I wasn't memorizing who had which exhibit or which theater because I wasn't interested in the now very dead people <clears throat> who were in it just to make some money at the World's Fair. They were exploiting the ability to make a quick buck and for that time, but they were, there was a, an Algerian theater, there was a street in Cairo. It's just that I didn't bother to memorize who I had to, I heard did it, ran it or not. And I don't remember if Saul Bloom said he did because he didn't. But I just found that out about three years ago. And Mr. Istvan Ormos has put out a book called Cairo in Chicago. And it was sponsored by people from the Egyptian, current Egyptian Ministry of Culture, because he was an expert on um, George Pengelo. And I think I just pronounced it right. And uh, <clears throat> he went out of his way to open my eyes to that. And there were also things where there were words that were similar but because they weren't my language or because it was a different dialect of that language, um, I thought it was this when it was that. Mm. For instance, in classical Arabic, sheikh is, uh, or sheikh in English, is a man who is knowledgeable in certain areas or has power or is very much respected, but somebody who is considered a leader in a, in a facet of the life of his grouping, his, his, his people. And the feminine of that is Sheikha, uh, a woman with knowledge or uh, talent or power. And there's a, a Moroccan dance called Sheikhat. 
and there's uh, an Algerian version of it and a Tunisian version, but they're different versions of it. And because it was done by a woman, supposedly a knowledgeable woman, and it was a type of dance that was um, <clears throat> done for uh, for joke, for fun, for being sexy, and used a couple of movements that were also used in dances that were done um, that were imitating movements of labor and childbirth. So I was told, and I saw one of the events where that happened within a family. Um, I and a lot of other people confused Sheikha with Shari. In Arabic, Shari is Eastern or Oriental in the sense of like an Oriental carpet. Uh, and Sheikha is a woman with knowledge and more specifically carnal knowledge um, and doing a hot little dance for fun. Mm -hmm. And there are actually some movements in both that are similar in both dances and some that aren't. Um, and these are things that I'm finding out as I learn more. The one, to me, um, bonus, there was not a bonus of the pandemic and not being able to go out and do my dance gigs because you didn't want to go out and nobody was hiring. People didn't want to get the plague. And I'm at home with my books and some of the other things I had, and I had nothing else to do but think about questions I had and what I thought was logical or not, and what I could believe now or not, because I had already been uh, in touch with Mr. Ormos um, and had realized that he was right because there were then ways of looking it up. Mm. And so I'm still learning and it's out of curiosity. And sometimes people with all good intentions are telling you things that they believe, but it turns out not to be true. Okay. Fortunately, the better things that I believe turned out to be true. And the ones that I thought, oh my God, I don't want to do this, were not true. Yeah, that's and so true. The more they learn, the more we also discover that we don't know, or sometimes we review and discover things that we believe to be true. Like with new information, we can look at them a different, uh, different perspective. I'm also curious to ask one question, which I know like you dedicated a lot of your research on the history of dance and also um, con colonial colonialism impact of dance and all these misunderstandings that occurred around dance. And even you mentioned briefly like the story of you that personally touched you, then your friends were thought, oh, belly dance. And uh, that's why they had this approach when you were sharing um, stories about your work there with them. Yeah. But I'm curious to ask the question which may be on slightly on the side of the subject, but it's uh, also still um, very much discussed uh, today, literally. Like, and the subject is, there are a lot of speculations about uh, history and roots of this dance. 
And there are some researchers and historians uh, and dancers that say, oh, it's a really ancient dance that comes uh, with its roots from ancient Egyptian temples. And there are other side, other researchers and historians that say, okay, let's be a little bit more realistic. The dance that we see today that we call, whatever we use the term, belly dance, oriental dance, raksharki, regardless of the term, but what we see today, it's based on, of course, on some history, some folklore dance of the region, but it's relatively modern thing, like couple centuries that it's informed like we see it is. In your opinion, I'm not asking you to take, you know, responsibility to say, oh, this is the truth or not. No, it's a good question. In your opinion, based on all the research that you did, what do you think on this subject? Here goes. This was one of the things that happened while I was sitting in this apartment, and I'm still sitting in this apartment because of Parkinson's disease now, but I'm sitting here looking at things and trying to figure out why was I seeing people from this place, that place, that place do the same thing, but the people here and here and here and here were doing something different, and they were calling it pretty much by the same name or a similar name. And I'm thinking about it, thinking about it. And finally, I pull out a map and I'm looking at what's going on there. And it turns out that for over 600 years, there was something called the Ottoman Empire that had conquered all of pretty much like North Africa, a lot of places and um, the Levant. Oh, they were uh, they were at the gates of Vienna. When all of a sudden, and I keep forgetting whether it was the Till of the Hun or um, uh, what's his face. Uh, I'll remember it. That's one of the things with Parkinson's. You forget a factoid in the middle of a sentence. I'll get back to it. It's okay. But there was a conqueror. And, they, okay, the Mongol hordes, and there was a Till of the Hun, and there was um, the emperor, one of the sultans, of uh, the Ottoman Empire, who was called the Lawgiver. And he was married to, uh, it wasn't married, one of his slave wives, because women were given as gifts to the Sultan, uh, was a redheaded Russian who was very beautiful and. Um, Roxolana? Or yes. Sultan also called yeah. today. Uh-huh. The order means it was one who smiles or laughs. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I realized was that where the differences were, were in areas where there were different governors sent by the Sultan to that area to rule in his place, to collect the taxes for him, to go back and forth. They were the intermediaries. And a lot of this, what, who was doing what where had to do with which governor was sent and his entourage that he brought with him. So there would be different things. Like I found, I saw things in Central Asia and in the Balkans that I didn't see in North Africa or in the Levant or in Egypt and things that I saw there that I did see in those places. And it had to be um, pretty much since the Ottoman Empire affected every area there, the one country they didn't conquer, but that country went along with them as kind of a fellow traveler, 
was the country Morocco, not me, the country. <laughs> and they were not conquered by um, the Sultan's armies, uh, but they went along with it because it was in their best interest to do so. And so, um, but there is nothing saying that there was worship of a female God. I wish there was, because I would like that. And I think it's actually logical, but people make up stories and the stories change over time. Mm -hmm. There's some really interesting uh, biblical stuff that I got into researching because I found it fascinating in the way we're taught certain, certain principles of Christianity or Judaism or Islam um, that change over time and has more to do with taking power away from women. And I don't particularly like that, but I like to know what the story is. And in going through all this stuff and seeing, well, you find this version of the dance here and here and here and there. And you find something like the Macedonian Chochek has the same, some of the same hip movements. And this is a folk dance from the mountains of Macedonia. Uh, they, they were hip movements and abdom, abdominal movements that you don't find in any other dance around there, but it's there. And you also find it in the Shikhat, but not in Shari. And there were some movements in uh, Central Asia that I saw, because one of the more interesting mistakes in my mind was I married a Russian and I was over there a lot and I was able to get in and see uh, folk things people were doing and they're still doing in their homes because my brother-in-law was the chief governor prosecutor in one of the republics, which was not what was interesting me, interest in me was who danced what and why. And because I had that connection, I was able to see things that you didn't see in the nightclubs. There. And it was the same thing with um, some Moroccan stuff. And there was also the Turkish uh, tradition of the uh, Kocheks, the male dancers that wore three-tiered, what we would consider skirts. And the European colonialists we're using that as a way of putting down the cultures by saying the men wear dresses and the women wear pants. That was supposed to be an insult, you know, because the women were wearing the big shalvar and the open coats with the embroidery that made it better than it lived in a uh, wire lift brassiere. And they try to take turn that into something that people would use against the people it belong to. So there was a lot, there's a lot of misinformation that we're given. And as I said, there I am in Brooklyn, New York, going over some of the, my, my back research and looking at some of the things I've said over the years and realizing. And it was also because I was trying to define what was Egyptian style, what was Turkish style, what was uh, Lebanese style. And I, was pretty much behind saying that it was uh, the music that was being danced to that led to some of the styling, if you're going to be dancing to the music, 
but you're using a movement. If this is a, a six eight and this is a ten eight and this is a four four, they're going to be different accents. And so I thought that it was more of the fault of the music. And it was only after I started looking at what I had and where the the certain movements were and why they were here and they were here because at this time um, that was who was bringing the entourage with his people and doing the dances they were familiar with. And so the people in their harems and in their uh, palaces, as it were, um, they were doing those dances and the ones that were a couple of hundred miles down that way were doing something else because someone else was in charge there. Mm-hmm. And nobody has found anything that connects it with uh, um, <clears throat> early Christianity, but uh, a, a professor, Dr. Tabor, um, has been doing a lot of research on that. And I've been reading some of his stuff and it, it comes, it agrees more with history than subsequent church doctrine. And you see how people's own opinions will, if they have a position of power, will influence what's accepted. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I was really curious to know about your opinion because like, I'm not researching any any possible way like i'm just curious to know about this stuff but it always were question like okay this um the statements that all oh, oriental dance ballet dance is deeply connected to like ancient egyptian traditions maybe possibly it was always the question okay it's from that region probably has something but do we even know how they danced in those ancient temples like where is the real like some real support of those evidences because there was no like real filming or written documentation of dances etc and at the same time it's a very well um selling story as a marketing tool because it attracts but it's kind of you want to believe because of course it's attractive idea but then there is a skeptical like okay but how true it is and it's not even like right or wrong because I don't think we still really know there are researches on both sides going on. So I was just curious to know about your opinion, what you think on this topic. So thanks for sharing. <laughs> oh, there are a couple of things that really fit in that very well. But there's a book called Before They Were Belly Dancers by Kathleen Fraser. And she did some straight ahead research that was uh, exactly what I thought had been happening. Um, and I agreed with it, but I was glad to see that she had gone and found bits and pieces of documentation. And I can also tell you that anything that Flaubert or his buddies wrote was strictly the lowest class pornography they could come up with in their own imaginations. And the racism and sexism, there was one of the things he wrote about uh, where his friends went to a little village in Egypt and they, they, the women had hairdos and hair like they'd never seen before, like, hello, you're in Africa. Oh, they never look at it, they didn't have a map to see where they were. And they found it so fascinating that they decided they were going to take the hair back as a souvenir and they paid the women's, the, the, the husbands to shave their wives' heads so they could take the hair back and the women are hysterical because they put a lot of time into their hair. 
and they came up with some great hairdos. I, we see some of them today still, thank God. And, and uh, but the cruelty, I mean, I was reading the book because I wanted to see what this fool had to say. And Madame Bovary, notwithstanding, I'm sorry, I wouldn't let that man through my door. You know, and then this is what we have as, as uh, that the European um, sex travelers, like they used to have sex tours to Thailand until AIDS was decimating that. Mm-hmm. And these were not nice people with any kind of um, artistic motive. They were getting off on it. And it was mean and cruel and colonialist and racist. I know that this uh, subject of colonialism, racism, and uh, orientalism and impact on dance and perception of dance was one of the central topics of your research. But you also did so many different projects, different researchers, uh, different goals of research and documenting related to this topic, some other topics. And we can take hours and hours and hours to go through all of them. It's a really impressive list of what you did. But I would like to ask you, for you personally, which topic or which research that you did feels like the most, you know, pressures that you really happy you did it and you got involved into this topic. Either it's researching something or documenting something, but either specific work comes on your mind or the topic in general that you dedicated your research attention specifically to this topic. Which one feels like, you know, really very important and very dear to your heart? I can't put my finger on it, but I did remember the name of the Sultan, Suleiman. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sultan Dever, and I, he was called the lawgiver. I, and it's the bits and pieces. And it's, you have to put together the bits and pieces. And some of them have nothing to do with the dance at all, but has to do with the attitude on what was available and prevailed at the time and the way meanings of things change. You can have a word that means, I, for instance, in America, the politest word you can use for some people for their rear ends is Fanny. And it's also a woman's name. In the United Kingdom, and especially in Australia and in uh, parts of the UK itself, Fanny is a really low class slang word for a woman's organs. And I didn't know that. I live in New York. I'm teaching a seminar in Melbourne in Australia. And I love Australia, by the way. It is a really great place. And uh, I'm is showing some one of the movements. And just as a joke, I was clenching my gluteus muscles, my behind muscles, to twinkle, twinkle, little star. And one of the women in the in that was taking the seminar said, and what what muscle are you using for that one? And I said, my fanny muscle. And the silence that fell on that room was like a bomb hitting. And I looked at them, they were like, 
the mouths were open and and because here I am being giving me cute little jokes to, on stage so they won't be afraid to try a movement. And I wait a minute, I'm from America. And I know that we have words that you have a different meaning for, and you have words that we have a different meaning for. In America, that is the politest word you could use for the muscles in your behind. And somebody says, well, it ain't polite. And that's true. It's not that they don't have those muscles, it's that that, that word, is not to be said in public. And I said, oh my God, what about the famous comedian, Fanny Bryce? She never would have made it in, in the UK because that was her name. And I remember reading in a detective novel that I was reading, um, the, the, the detective was, was talking to his daughter and they were telling something about Somebody, oh, he, the daughter's name was Fanny. He liked the name. And he didn't know there'd be anything wrong with it in the UK. So he takes his child with him to the UK to do, to, to break a case. It was a detective novel, uh, to break the case. And when he wondered why the whole room fell silent whenever he introduced his daughter. And it was because her name was Fanny. Now, mm -hmm. in the States, what? There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's, that's the politest way you can describe it. And we supposedly both speak English. And I remember the first time I was in London and I was going to be making an overflight uh, from London elsewhere and I was in a bed and breakfast and the woman who owned it knocks on the door and says, and what time should I knock you up in the morning, sweetie? And I said, what? What time should I knock you up? I said, you, first of all, that's uh, physically impossible. We're both women. And secondly, uh, you have an alarm clock. And it turns out that to wake somebody up, you're knocking on the door, it knock you up. In American English, and especially in that era, to knock somebody up was to get them pregnant. And, they, and we're supposed to be speaking the same language. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a, it. Create interesting example. Even when we share sort of the same language, we think we share, but uh, right. we still may understand differently from what was said. And yes. if you're talking about the scale of the entire culture, it may take a lifetime to understand really fully some other culture that you were not grown up with. Uh, and yeah. you're trying to tap in out of curiosity, out of love, out of passion, and need to be careful when to, you can uh, step on a rock and slide uh, without knowing <laughs> what you're really exactly. doing. Exactly. Oh, I, a few years ago, the first time I was teaching in China, and I was in, uh, oh, where was I? Was, it was the second or the third, Fuzhou. I was in Fuzhou. But they took me to a restaurant that served uh, food from a, an ethnic minority called the Meow people. Now, there's enough in Meow to make a lot of jokes because I love cats. But um, their food was very spicy. 
and it was delicious, but my eyes were running, my nose was running, I'm blowing my nose because it was so spicy. And I'm wondering why I'm getting these strange looks from the people. And my hostess, the one who brought me there, explained that in China, the worst thing you can do in public is blow your nose. It shows complete contempt for the people around you. I hadn't the slightest idea. And I wonder if I, I didn't know. And I said, please explain to them I had no idea. It would have been considered more impolite if I didn't blow my nose, if I let it just that's why it's I said it's, some customs just don't make sense and we all agreed that some customs just don't make sense speaking of teaching uh, it's really impressive like you still basically teaching around the world online uh, traveling like even a few years ago you were saying in China before that um, Australia and other countries but in your teaching career and teaching path, you had experience of teaching Middle Eastern dance in university in New York. And this is something yeah. very uh, unusual because we don't see really much of that in universities, uh, attention dedicated specifically to Middle Eastern dance. Can you share a little bit how did you got involved in teaching at university and what was that experience like? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that one of the reasons I had such a hard time finding information was because dance in general, and especially folk dances, were not considered worthy of having a place in an educational institution because the dances of the common people were common. And it was a, it was a culture, uh, an anti-culture situation. And the reason I got my first job teaching at the University of New York up the Purchase branch in Purchase, New York, um, was because the fellow who was in charge of the adult education and the evening classes liked Oriental dance. He was from California, from the uh, Bay Area and from like San Francisco, Berserkly and places like that. Uh, he liked it and he was in charge of the program. So he put it in and they saw that a lot of people wanted the course and they liked it, but it was in the phys ed, phys ed, physical education department. They didn't consider it worthy at that point in education history in America. There was only one college in the entire country that was, uh, I think it was in Berlin, I got a ranking on which name. I think it was in Vermont, with one college that had a dance major. There was no such thing as the Society of Dance History Scholars or the, um, what is it? The, um, they were called, there was another organization, the Dance Guild. There were two of them, I was in both of them. Uh, and that was the mid 60s. It didn't exist until then. I hope I remember the name of the college. I think it was in Burlington. Now, Burlington okay. is a city, but it was in Vermont. And they didn't consider dance worthy of scholarship. Mm. That's why. But since then, like in general, you got quite a lot of uh, grants and support from different councils and even government organizations. But I'm really curious, specifically about university, um, was it 
your initiative to try to get to teach at university or you got invited finally at some point and dance and specific attention to Middle East and dance raised then someone invited you to try to join and do university work and what was your main focus or the main message that you wanted to teach through the course at university dedicated to Middle East and dance? Well, I, I, wouldn't specifically, I didn't specifically go after teaching in the university. I just took whatever good job came along. And if it was something I could use to help the dance and to help my bottom line and uh, to get people acquainted with something that I found so beautiful and such fun, I wanted them to understand it was a lot of the prejudice against dancing has to do with a lot of the religions and a lot of these subsets of religions in the West are anti-dance because they assume that if a man and a woman are in the same room at the same time, sex is going to happen. And uh, I guess they have the problem because it doesn't happen with me and a lot of other people I know. However, it's a lot of it has to do with people's own misinterpretation of motive and what it's supposed to be. And I could never understand that. I really couldn't understand it because I didn't see any logic in it. Mm. That's just me personally. I was, I liked teaching the class. I wasn't given much time to do academics, but we didn't have much in the way of academics. I see. And today, there is much more information available. And in general, there is more uh, awareness also among dancers, uh, even among general audience, but let's say dance community more. Like dancers are more into trying to research and understand the dance that they are performing. But there is still a lot of concept- mis- uh, misunderstandings and misconceptions. What do you feel, in your opinion, is the biggest misunderstanding around this dance style that dancers that perform it still have? Because they don't think that it takes this good technique that you have to work at making something artificial look natural when you're doing it. And it has to do with the, uh, how do you call it? It's the attitude of it has to be disciplined. You have to uh, have some kind of structure that's difficult to overcome in order to succeed in it. It has some of it has to do with that. That's kind of a snobbery of what requires more work or more dedication. Um, and it's still the misinterpretation of the misnomer. It's the people who say, well, yeah, there are some good belly dancers, but it's not a real dance. And it, excuse me. Um, I've studied both from the inside of the cultures out, and uh, it's not what you think it is. It's a lot better and freer and happier and helpful. I I just don't get the logic. If I don't get the logic, I'm gonna find out why. Mm. <laughs> I'm getting something wrong or it's being explained wrong or some other people are wrong and I'm right. And I'm not always right. Oh, there's one crazy Armenian root player many years ago who used to say all the time, I may not always be right, but I'm never wrong. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. 
I don't have that attitude, but he did. <laughs> um, but that's a whole other thing. It's there's so many factors that pile in there, and it's I find it funny that uh, the in the university setting, with a few colleges that are that are experimented with courses in what they were calling Oriental dance or whatever name they gave to it, and some of them were saying it was tribal, but the tribal that they were just doing never saw a tribe. Um, and the travel is an interesting, and I really, and can be beautifully done. I've seen I've seen beautiful performers, and I've seen real clods in both fields. And the, the people seem to be less frightened when the dancer is wearing a lot of clothes than when he or she isn't. And that's their problem with the human body. You know, something moving well is beautiful. So to the point, <laughs> you know, we started this conversation with the very beginning of your story, how you got involved in this uh, dance world, specifically Middle Eastern dance world. And uh, as we are slowly coming to the closing the story, uh, closing our conversation, I would love to ask, uh, how about today? Uh, what is your focus or your project because you were mentioning a few years ago during pandemic you were reviewing some of your research work is there anything today that you are excited and working on in terms of dance dance research that you wouldn't mind sharing with us <laughs> i would like very much to be able to explain where i was wrong or where i was misinterpreting something and why and what i found out was the reality of it it was Like, you know, who was telling the right, who was telling the true story and who was telling the made up story, who thought this was true because that was what his mother told him or her mother or her father, or because this was what he or she saw or the way they did it in their town or in their family and what the reality is. And uh, like, for instance, as I said, with the, uh, the name, like with the belly dance, uh, why that is looked on and why I found what I found as far as why there were different movements from different areas. But what, what I'm dealing with right now is Parkinson's and it is, has taken away my ability to dance. And <clears throat> I'm constantly fighting with the, my health insurance to get good physical therapy and They keep sending somebody and then interrupting it and sending it and interrupting it. And so I'm worried about being able to move, but I want to get straight what I got wrong to begin with so that people aren't reading stuff I wrote years from now and saying, well, I didn't, my research wasn't good because I said this and this, because that's what I was told or what I thought it was as far as it had mainly to do with names and who did what and to whom when. And realizing that it was all because of the Ottoman Empire and where it empired, you know, where Suleiman had his governor from uh, who, who was uh, Albanian, where he had one who was um, from <clears throat> higher, more north in Turkey. And when they when they stopped doing them, or when they started doing them again, and when I first started. <clears throat> most of the restaurants that had Middle Eastern music and food 
were Greek and Levantine, Lebanese, Syrian. And now uh, most of the ones that we have around are Egyptian. And when it when I first started, the Greeks had finally gotten away from Turkish domination not too long before that. And they would have a whole herd of cows if somebody said this dance is also Turkish. They say, no, it's good. no, it's also Greek. They said it was, it was oh, pardon me, my tongue got all tangled. They, if you said that this dance had anything Greek in it, they would have a herd of cows because they didn't want to be associated with the Turks. There was still a lot of anti-Turk feeling. Mm. And I find it fascinating because um, the Armenians have kind of two basic groups, the Ritashnaks and the Ramgavars. And one of them will not play anything Turkish. doesn't matter how beautiful the song is. If it's Turkish, they won't play it. And the other group says, beautiful music is beautiful music. The Turks can go screw. Um, we are going to play this music. And you can go screw too, because we're going to play the music. And uh, so that now there are a few Greek dancers who are insisting that the Hellenic aspects of the dance also be included. Now, I'm for inclusion. I'm totally for inclusion. And um, one of the first clues in uh, my looking up at the way I was looking at what, where, what, what came from where was when people started calling it Menat dance, M-E-N-A-T, Middle Eastern, North African. Uh, and the, the uh, letter for the Greek is silent because then they say they don't have uh, that particular letter, but they have the dance. That's, so that's what I want to do. Um, that's so impressive that, uh, you know, you have been dancing and research, teaching and researching dance for over 60 years at this point. And it's so, yeah. so incredible how much passion and curiosity um, and uh, this drive you have still till now to deepen your knowledge and at the same time with all your rewards all your achievements all your acknowledgements you still have so much humility in terms or and humbleness in terms of uh acknowledging that you might have made some mistakes that you want to correct now and to do as much as possible to contribute to other dancers, to other people who are interested in this topic. And it's really just inspiring to hear your story and to hear that till now you're still so much dedicated to dance, dedicated to research activities. And uh, that's really, really, really impressive. <laughs> Thank you. I'm having a lot of problems because... I can't leave the house yet. I can't go up and down stairs. And I, my vision is going in my left eye, so I can't read the way I would like to. But I, I, I find a way around it. There's always a way around it. And if you want to enough, I say, I said this. Yes, I did. And I believed it. Yes, I did. And there was evidence to say that this is true. But it is not true in all situations. This is what I found out later. And part of it may be my mistake in remembering, uh, not remembering the names of both men who had exhibits with involving 
some type of Middle Eastern dance or North African dance at the World's Fair. Like the whole dispute mm. about, was there really a little Egypt? There wasn't. Mm. There was nobody who was called that at the time. There were a lot of people who claimed it later because they didn't, they wanted to get in on the business. Well, I definitely wish you good luck with your health care and wish you uh, improvements on the things that now are maybe causing some troubles for you. So wish you good health, strength, Thank lots you. of energy to do what you love to do and to continue it. And I would like to also to ask, is there anything that we as a ballet dance community or oriental dance middle eastern dance community can do to help and support you and your work and if you don't mind also sharing for our listeners is there any resources or places that they can get even more familiar with your research work and what you did i know you have website maybe you have some other places where they can uh, see and find more and my also first question was is there anything that we can do to to support you and support your activities <laughs> oh my god well i don't have a 501c3 <clears throat> uh, permit anymore because i disbanded my dance company so i can't say that they can tax exempt contributions because i don't have that ability to give the tax exemption at the moment um but my God, thank you for saying, just for saying that. I don't know. Is there any uh, classes or video courses or any, I don't know, books that they can buy? I know you have a book, but I, I, I just wanted to, to see if you want to direct, you know, our listeners to anything that would really help and contribute to your activities, first of all, and then I'll, I'll add whatever I know. <laughs> I'll have to figure that out because um, the young woman that, agreed to be my editor or actually was the editor for the first version of the book and the second version where I corrected some of the mistakes that the printer made. The first set of the, that, of the books that came out in 2013, uh, I think that was 2013, um, were full of printer errors. And so we put out another one that had far fewer printer errors. And as I found uh, things that were inadvertently left in that should have been out, like the thing about uh, Saul Bloom having the street in Cairo. Um, if somebody has bought my book through Amazon because um, I gave the copyright to the editor and for all the work she did, and there is a Kindle version of it, but the Kindle version hasn't been updated yet. If they have, if they've bought my book and want the some of the more, some more corrections and a couple of reading suggestions, to email me, and I will email it to them. And uh, beyond that, I'll have to figure out well, with something about getting better Medicare because I need I need hearing aid, I need glasses, and you have to get out to a doctor in order to be able to get those examinations. And um, I'm doing what I can and we'll see what happens. Well, that's and very yes. kind of you to offer for the book suggestion, but that's again, that's about readers and listeners. <laughs> uh, I was curious to know, so 
for today, where is the best place to get your book? For you? Amazon. Amazon? You get it on Amazon. And then whatever commission there is goes to my former uh, editor. And I was I got part of that when I still had the 501c3. And I paid my taxes on that part of it. Um, and uh, I don't get anything from what's out there now. I told her she could have the rest of it because she didn't even break even. Mm. Is there any classes or video lectures maybe recorded that uh, uh, people can buy that will contribute uh, directly to you? Well, I've just I've just gotten a new computer because my old one can't handle the new OSs. And we've got to get that put together. And once that's put together, I'm going to be working on updating the book. And also there are a couple of lectures I did for the belly dance bundle mm -hmm. that are out there and a couple of other lectures that I have on my computer that I would be able to, or somebody wants to type them and turn them into something that can be printed out. We'll have to figure that out. Well, I definitely include link to your website in the show notes to the episode. So I encourage all listeners, go check it out. There are many different articles about your story and about your, I mean, dance story experience about dance in general. So that's a very cool and very inspiring resource. And I would really encourage our listeners to keep an eye on the website announcements if there are any lectures or any events coming up so they can follow and, and support your activities. And also, of course, benefit themselves by learning more about dance because that's what, by definition, what you're doing in your work. So uh, thank you for doing that. Also, thank you so much for spending this time uh, with me, with us. Although our listeners are right now virtual, but they will be all listening and they will be virtually together with us at this moment, uh, although in different points of time and space around the planet. But thank you so much for taking this time to talk and to share about your dance story. I really, really appreciate it. It's uh, such an honor and such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I'm looking forward to seeing uh, your upcoming projects, your upcoming revisions, your researches, and whatever new comes up, because you are just a treasure of inspiration and motivation for all dancers to dig deeper and deeper in the topics that are of interest or of importance to learn for all of us. So thank you so much for that. <laughs> You're going to make me cry. It's Burlington College in Vermont that was had a dance major but it was still under the physical education department. And that was in the 60s, into the 70s. Mm. And if you allow me a couple more minutes, I just want to ask you one final question. We have oh, one traditional question. It's a very special question. It's a very traditional question because I ask every single guest Every time when we are doing interview, I ask this question at the very end. So our collection of 200 plus interviews, everyone answered this question. And I'm really excited to ask you. Uh, you can go deep or you can just take it like, you know, what comes first on the mind, on the surface, whatever you feel. But the question is, what makes you fall in love with belly dance, with Middle Eastern dance again? 
and again. So you keep doing it, keep researching it for so many years. I don't know. It isn't one specific thing. It's just the whole vibe around it, the music that it's danced to. And when you're just doing it for fun, the way it could free you and comfort you, it's... It's a, it's kind of like a, a happiness drug. That's it for today. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And before you leave, don't forget to screenshot and share it with your friends. The more people get inspired, the better it is for our dance community. Until next time, keep shimming and see you soon.